Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to another installment of New Books and Poetry. I am your host, Jen Fitzgerald. Poetry anthologies offer readers the chance to sample a wide array of poems ordered by poet, content, form, or aesthetics. Today, I have the pleasure of featuring another poetry anthology about which I am very excited. Political Punch Contemporary Poems on the Politics of Identity has been released this year by Sundress Publications. I have the two editors with us today to discuss the anthology. Erin Elizabeth Smith is the creative director of the Sundress Academy for the Arts and the managing editor of Sundress Publications and The Wardrobe. Smith is the author of two full-length collections and editor of two print anthologies, Political Punch and Not Somewhere Else But Here. Her poems have appeared in numerous journals, including Mid-American, Crab Orchard Review, Samarin Review, among others. She holds a Ph.D. in creative writing and teaches a bit of everything in the English department at the University of Tennessee, where she is also the Jack E. Reese writer in the library. Fox Fraser Foley is an author of two prize-winning collections of poetry, Exodus in X Minor and The Hydromantic Histories. She's recently edited two anthologies, Political Punch with Erin, through Sundress, and Among Margins, through Ricochet Editions. Fox runs a nifty little press called Agape Editions. Welcome. Thanks for having us. Yeah, hi. So, let's jump right in and talk about the anthology. Where did the idea for this come from? The idea for the anthology grew out of a series that I curated at Veva Poetry Blog in um, autumn of 2014, I think it was. And that series was also called Political Punch. It was um, it's a little bit of a reaction to the Juan Vizal essay that ran on NPR. But I think it was called Where Have All the Poets Gone? And um, it was largely focused on a small group of white male writers um, and held them up as sort of the pinnacle of political poetry. Um, And it was suggesting that contemporary authors are falling short of the standards set by these political poets. Um, I think a lot of people uh, took exception to some of the the contentions in that essay. And so I I was one of them. And um, there ended up being a lot of people that wrote political poetry that wanted to contribute to a series that showcased Um, the kind of contemporary political writing that American poets are doing today. Um, So that was the sort of the original inception of political punch. Mm. Yeah, for me, it was, um, I think one of the arguments that made me uh, with that say in a reaction to Juan Vidal's um, uh, NPR essay um, was the idea that political poetry also had to be polemical. Because um, I, I couldn't, I couldn't quite understand what his theory was. It seemed to be that you know here are some certain poets who are writing explicitly political 
poetry to some extent, but then also talking about things like Howl uh, as a political poem, but then ignoring any kind of poetry that was dealing with identity in the same way that in many ways that like Howl is. So it seemed very, very limited. I don't think he actually mentioned a single uh, you know female writer in in the article, and uh, it seemed. Like a very strange idea of, and a very old idea of what political poetry does, um, rather than kind of thinking about, um, you know, that the idea of the personal is political and thinking about our individual experience, the, the stating of our individual experience as a political gesture. Um, so I think when we were thinking about putting it together, a lot of it uh, had to do with trying to figure out what political meant for us. Mm. Yeah, that, that's a very big question that I hope that we can go in depth with later on in the interview. Um, what was it like to collaborate on Political Punch? Did you find that you had similar visions, or was this a melding of two different aesthetics? I think having two voices, two two editors thinking about this, and kind of we we spent a lot of time going back and forth and and talking about what. What we what we defined as political, what we wanted it to be. Um, I think you know our aesthetics balance each other very well. Um, but I think we also found, at least I found, that we would like the same authors, but like different poems by them, uh, which actually works out really well. Which means there's kind of you know it's each of the even each of, even within each of the authors that you read within the anthology, the poems that are coming from them seem oftentimes different uh, and different ways of attacking different ideas. Um, so I think that uh, and a lot of the poems also were curated from with Fox from uh, the original Political Punch series on uh, the, the poetry blog. So it became kind of an interesting way of having similar aesthetics, but also similar different ideas in terms of what we were looking for within each of the poems, if that makes sense. It does, definitely. Fox, yeah. you, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with everything that Aaron just said. And I think also, um, I think that a lot of our conceptual goals for the book were, were similar. And there was a significant amount of overlap in um, how we perceived um, sort of our, our game plan for attempting to curate a, a really good cross-section of American letters that... Um, you know, try, we tried our best to really circumnavigate, uh, I think, a lot of the, the usual pitfalls that anthologies will, will um, succumb to, where um, there's, I don't know, I think an, an idea of completeness that is, is flawed at the inception, where there are uh, maybe several different writers who are writing about different things, but they all come from very similar backgrounds or they have very similar experiences. Um, and so it ends up maybe not being quite as complete as, you know, what one would hope. And I think that we had similar ideas about being inclusive that was probably really helpful, um, maybe more so than our, <laughs> the fact that we did usually end up liking uh, pieces by the same authors, if not all. I think that uh, circumnavigate's a really smart word for this because I can very easily picture this as a globe and that you quite literally have gone around you know, the equator of it and you have included um, versions of identity and spectrums of identity that don't often get play in anthologies. And you guys did a stellar job, if nobody told you that yet. 
<laughs> so um, I would love to know a little bit about the selection process because I, I hear that you guys liked similar pieces and by similar poets, but I do imagine that there was some grappling over um, what goes in and <laughs> what, what doesn't make it. I'm laughing because actually this was um, this was for me at least it was surprisingly laid back. Um, I I never really felt there was grappling. I think probably. Um, especially when we we both liked um, work by the same author, if not necessarily the same work. I think probably the phrase that we most passed back and forth between us was, I like X, but I'll defer to you. So <laughs> I never really felt that there was a lot of grappling. I don't, I hope Aaron had the same yeah. answer, I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that was, I mean, w- well, it, the process went through several different variations. So there was there was the political the political punch uh, uh, series on the blog, but then there was also um, we we actually we did an open call. Uh, we received over two thousand poems uh, that were sent to us, and we had a group of about I want to say twenty five readers uh, call down the, that two thousand poems to about 250 poems of which then Fox and I paired it to about 35 from there I believe um, from the the open so I mean the we and and we wanted to make sure that we weren't it was it was very interesting we didn't want to keep talking we didn't want to have too many poems kind of coming from a, a similar background or um, similar kind of I not identity. It's not exactly right. Um, but we were looking. We were really looking to make sure that that we were incorporating a, a chorus of voices. So a lot of that, that, I think, was part of that selection process too. So let's hear one of the poems. Um, we're going to listen to Sarah A. Chavez. She's going to read her piece. And for listeners who are reading along, you may find this poem on page fifty-five. This is Sarah A. Chavez reading. Praise this land, the San Joaquin Valley. Praise this land, the San Joaquin Valley. Praise this land whose arms opened to the sky's lost children. Praise to the rotating tires along the asphalt laid by these children and their children's children, a rainbow of children whose hair is long and straight whose hair is short and kinky, whose hair is red like the strawberries at the roadside stand. Praise to the roadside stand and the dark man sweating under a colorful umbrella and the fleece blankets for sale hung across a taut drawn line. Their designs of cats and football emblems Roses and the Virgin Mother with her hands outstretched to Diego, illuminating culture from across the freeway. Praise industry and hard work, calloused hands and squinted eyes. Praise remittances and work sheds, green onions and tomatoes. Praise your ancestors who loved the land like their own flesh and massaged its parched roughness with water and rancheras, whose tan fingers sank deep into the soil to make holes into which to whisper, La tierra te alabo. Praise the generations who sang to the earth 
and whose songs were carried by the winds and scattered like seeds that were planted and grew more songs and more songs until the plunge of the hoe between rows of cilantro released thousands of loving voices whose words say, praise me, praise me, you made me. I really enjoyed um, this poem, and I was glad that we were able to feature it in this interview. Um, what was it about this piece that drew you in? Uh, this particular piece was its incantatory nature, um, the the anaphora of the of the praise and the way that it would praise one thing and then it would, in particular, I love, um, you know, uh, whose hair is red like the strawberries at the roadside stand, praise to the roadside stand, and the ways in which uh, there's this kind of notion of all of these things being deeply interconnected within within the space, but also just within history and within identity and within, um, you know, even uh, within the nature of the poem, the way that it all kind of turns in on itself and this wonderful, beautiful thing that makes up uh, that praise me, praise me, you made me uh, at the end. Uh, it seems to just uh, kind of resonate to say all of these things are part of who we are. I think for me it was um, the physicality of the poem and there's, I think um, something that always appeals to me is uh, the ability to achieve a connection or to realize or convey a connection between um, the physical and the non-physical, sort of, I guess you, maybe you would say the metaphysical um, and so for me all of these really beautiful images are um, they're so beautifully connected to, um, I guess, the, the values or the ideas or the experiences that they represent. Um, the last two lines of the middle stanza where she says, praise industry and hard work, calloused hands and squinted eyes, praise remittances and work sheds, green onions and tomatoes. To me, that's just really seamless and really beautiful. Um, and I think Erin used the word interconnectedness. And that's for me, that's like really shining example of it. I thought it was really cool. Yeah, um, I really enjoyed how each stand each stanza ended with produce, but not not in a way where it was just there. It was being elevated almost as though that was the apex, you know, to which she was climbing in each stanza. I love that poem. Um, so the poems in the the anthology are in alphabetical order by the poet's last name, and I know that there was conversation about how. Um, each fit in together. I was wondering if there was some sort of an arc that you guys found was created through having these poems set up in this way. Um, I think for me, I <laughs> it sounds so unartistic to say, but I'm not sure I was even thinking about an arc, really. Um, I think that if I had been trying to order a, an anthology um, in a more arbitrary way that probably I would have been thinking first and foremost about an arc. Um, I think that my main concern with how we ordered it was that a lot of the time um, in an anthology, I think you'll hear authors talk about the beginning or the end as being sort of, um, you know, spots in a book where space is at a premium and work tends to get more uh, attention. And I think I was very concerned with not privileging any story or voice or identity or experience over another. And so it seemed that perhaps to just 
arrange them alphabetically by author name was a way of not uh, giving preferential treatment to uh, one identity or one, one narrative over another. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we talked about that because we, we discussed the possibility of, of putting together, you know, and creating a, a narrative or creating kind of a, a, a way of reading it from front to back. But we, we ultimately determined, yeah, we, we really didn't want to privilege one voice over another voice in, in any way, shape or form. And we also wanted to, we felt that it was, or, yeah, the, the privileging was one of it. But then I think also to trying to figure out like what that arc is within the context of it. I think more, as I mentioned earlier, it feels more like, more like a chorus than it is like a story. Um, and I think having putting it now putting alphabetical order was just the easiest way to kind of create that uh, that effect. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so for our next reading, because I'd love to hear some more, uh, we have Amber Flame reading Black Boy Whistle on page eighty one. When Black Boy Whistle, everyone come running to see what everyone has something to say about what to do about and who should be doing it too. When he whistled, they want to assume. Whistle must be something to do with them. Whistle must be warning he about to take. Everybody know Black Boy always wanting. Black Boy whistles never just need a cab who ignores Black Boy, though he try catch it anyway. Black Boy only needs. is never just an excerpt of a tune in his life. Black Boy never needs. is never just Black Boy enjoying his own head. Ain't nothing a Black Boy could be thinking about to make him whistle or either. Black Boy whistle while he... When black boy whistle, black girl's supposed to strut harder. Black girls always want black boy desire. When black boy whistle, white girl's supposed to run and tell. White girls always reject black boy desire. White boy's supposed to stop it. White boys always fear black boy desire. They supposed to. Whistle must mean he's staring too long at something don't belong to him. Everybody know black boy always looking at. When black boy whistle, he be asking to bring the roof down around his head. Asking for patrol car stop and frisk. And lynch mob too. He be asking for it. When black boy whistle, everyone come running to see what. Ain't nobody asked him to put his lips together and blow. One of the things that I really liked about this poem was uh, was the the way in which it was performed we knew, like you knew even on the page like you wanted to hear it you knew the sounds you knew what was um it felt like it was just in this particular space and I, I remember Fox and I both talked about this immediately and we were like, we really want an audio recording of this in the book. Um, and we uh, we actually have several different poems that are in the book that have little cue codes where you can uh, you can listen to them uh, online or see performances. And that was something that was really important to us in putting the book together was making sure that these voices weren't just read, but there were also voices that were able to be heard or people who were able to be uh, to you able to be able to see their performance. Um, and that was something we we really tried to do in this poem in particular I remember us having a conversation saying I really want to hear what this sounds like and I think the Flames uh, performance is just heartbreaking and beautiful and and resonant in a way that you get on the page in a different sort of way than you do when you actually hear it too Mm, I agree, the part of this poem that most resonates with me are those blanks at the end of the line um it looks like they can be so many things. They can be holding space. They can be a place for you to fill in the blanks. They can also represent that everything and anything can go in that space at the end of the line. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, um, I think it creates a really nice sort of 
performative aspect on the stage. And I think for me, I'm I'm really drawn to aperture. I'm drawn to open spaces on stage um, for all of the reasons that Jen just mentioned. And also, I think I frequently, as, as a reader, I think I frequently equate subconsciously the use of space or aperture um, with wound or with silence. Mm. Um, and so I think that there's... There's a really beautiful tension in this poem on the page, I think, between wounds and rage. And for me, that was really effective. Mm. I, I exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, so since you two have edited an anthology together, I think that it is safe for me to ask you this question. But why do you think anthologies are important? I think for me, it's a question of completeness, which we maybe talked about a little bit at the beginning of this conversation. Um, I think that, you know, with the way at least American culture, I'll speak for American culture, um, is structured that there are certainly some voices that are heard more loudly and more frequently and with greater intensity than other voices. And I I think it's been that way for a pretty long time. Um, And I think that there are a lot of narratives and aesthetics and um, experiences that don't get the the space or the time or the attention that they deserve. And so for me, anthologies are able to do a kind of work that publishing a book by a single author or even by two authors frequently is not able to accomplish, which is to remind the, each reader of a, a multiplicity of realities, a multiplicity of selves, and uh, you know, multiplicity of experience that really creates, um, I think, a much more complicated culture than we frequently take the time to sort of parse out for ourselves on a daily basis. Yeah, absolutely. I remember. Um, I remember even just in high school, like you know, reading you know, just our textbook, which I mean is an anthology of sorts, and and you know, it was, I was just like one dead white guy after another, and I was so bored. I was like, if I have to read about frost and stupid time, <laughs> I'm going to throttle something. And I I skipped to the end of the book, and I started reading um, like Plath and Sexton, which we of course never got to. I mean, I don't think we read a single female poet, or a non, or, or maybe even a single non-white poet, even. Um, in that in that class, and I remember reading Plath and Sexton, and just being so immersed in the fact that there were voices that sounded like my own, um, and that was such an important moment for me when I was like fifteen or sixteen, and realizing that poetry wasn't, uh, you know, just all men in their flowers or men in their <laughs> sky or whatever. Uh, <laughs> And and realizing that it could be more about and more about personal you know personal experience, um, and and a female experience. So and I can see how it was. It's yeah, it's really easy right now to pick up an anthology. Even you know even the Norton uh, you know contemporary and modern poetry anthologies are super white and super male, um, and really privilege uh, particularly privilege uh, male voices. Um, I, I do a unit in my class where 
uh, students do the research on a particular uh, movement in poetry. So whether it's the New York School or Beats or Confessionalism or Slam Poetry, and really only Slam Poetry isn't even included in the Norton. Not, it's like it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. And uh, Confessionalism is the only other one that has any women at all that are listed. And even then, Lowell is the main focus. Um, but so I mean, I usually have to supplement in order for people to read poetry from the 20th century or from the middle part of the 20th century in particular that isn't just a bunch of white dudes um and i think that's that's you know there needs i think if you're going to read an anthology or teach an anthology even more so because i think that's where they tend to get used most often um you want to be able to find a reflection of you in some way in there and to not have that reflection is is to to wonder if you exist Mm -hmm. Well, those are far better answers than I had anticipated. Thank you. Um, George Orwell said, The opinion that art should have nothing to do with politics is itself a political attitude. And although this type of writing has many incarnations, how should we define political poetry? That's that's one that we spent a lot of time talking about. Um, for me... For me, I can I can think of a couple. I think that quote is very apt. I also think of um, Adrian Rich's uh, response to um, turning down the the National uh, Medal of uh, Freedom, um, uh, and she she talked about how art is not meant to simply uh, decorate the tables uh, of the wealthy, basically, or those in power. And I think that that's that was important to me as well, thinking about the who. Again, who were folk, whose voices get to be heard in this anthology, but as well as what what we want to be political about. Like I didn't. We had a bunch of poems that were kind of screeds, um, and there's definitely a space for that. We also had lots of stuff that was super polemical and super like call to action, and and some of those some of those came in, but the ones that I was drawn to much more so were ones that were poems that were really focused in. Again, in in the, in the politics of identity of who we are, but also who you know that again that idea of the personal is political. That the telling of one story is is to make a political statement. Um, so for me, that was one that I kind of I think I kind of kept going back to and kept thinking about in terms of how how is this tell how is this being a political statement that was uh, and and without actually being like you know, all, you know, an entire poem of hashtags or an entire poem of, uh, of just, of, of just anger without anything else. And I understand the space for all of those things, but we, I think I, for me, I didn't feel like this anthology was quite that space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with a lot of things that Aaron said, and it's true. We talked a lot about this. Um, I guess, I think we talked about it a little bit more in the context of how we wanted to define political poetry for this anthology versus the obviously much more intimidating task of defining political poetry, like qua political poetry. Um, that seems like a really, really big task to me. I don't, I don't know that I really feel up to that right now, but, um, I will say that to me, um, if, if we were going to try to, in this conversation, approach, um, a definition of political poetry, for America right now, 
My feeling is that it's so largely contingent upon context that I think for me at this point, almost every piece of writing I read is political. It may not be intended to be political, but the the experiences and circumstances and identity um, and, and mind that I filter it through is so charged right now that I think, um, I guess my, to me, my participation in a text as even as a reader or a listener um, for me makes it political right now. Um, so I, I don't know how useful that is in a broader definition or necessarily even talking about what we were looking for in this book. But um, I think that it's really, I think as we become more and more aware um, of the kind of injustices that are happening inside of our country daily, I mean, big ones and small ones um, just of all varieties, I think as educated people who keep ourselves informed, it becomes increasingly difficult not to perceive any text that takes a stand about virtually any human issue as somewhat politically charged because most texts that do that have something to say about identity and experience, not just of the author, but of the people who are somehow connected to the author or the, or the speaker. And I think it ends up, um, I, I feel like it's kind of a cultural matrix that is inescapable right now, at least for me it is. Yeah. yeah. I've given a lot of thought to this as well. And I know that George Orwell, whom you know I just quoted, um, he's kind of like the grandfather of, of the person who thought about his writing as an act of art, an act of um, political rebellion, and as something entirely different from literature. But I do know that he was writing as a white male about um, oppressors who were white males to a white male audience. And I tend to be a little bit more of the mind, like Kathy Park Hong's assertion in The New Republic, that we've entered into a new era of poetry of social engagement. So I'm, I think the political now is a lot more about social engagement. I think, too, there's also a sense of, I think it's about empathy as well. I mean, that's is one thing that I, I think a lot about when I'm teaching and, and who I'm teaching and how I'm teaching their writing is, is does this, you know, is, is, is the reading of literature a way of, of, creating empathy um you know by being by inhabiting the the characters or the poems or the voices that we're reading um does that help us to understand a wider range of people that might not be you know come from the same backgrounds that we do and i think that that's um that's something i've been kind of contemplating a lot and I think that was important within the context of, of this of this book too for me so um, I'd love for the listeners to hear C.A. Conrad's poem it's on page 67 act like polka dot on Minnie Mouse's skirt I am not a family friendly faggot I tell your children about war about their tedious future careers all the taxes bankrolling a racist, tyrannical military. I'm the faggot at dinner, asking to be alone with the children. Tell them their future happiness depends entirely on how well they cultivate rebellion against any structure which does not hold their autonomy and creative intelligence as a priority. Children, your bliss is at stake. Children, listen carefully. For the lies your parents tell you. Children, prepare for joy. 
in ways none of them will ever imagine. Prepare to live with no regrets. I love this poem. Um, I I love the delivery of it. It was it was delightful to hear it out loud um, the first time that I got to hear it. And this is actually this has a very special place in my heart. Not only because of the irreverence, which I'm usually pretty partial to irreverence everywhere, um, but also because this is the original to me. This is the original political punch poem when I when I wanted to start the series. I. Uh, I didn't have anyone lined up to contribute anything, and I didn't know very many people. I actually didn't know C.A. Conrad, but um, somebody introduced me to him, like, halfway, and I kind of jumped on that half introduction and was like, hey, I'd really like to do this political punch series. Do you have any interest? And he immediately uh, sent me this poem and a, a little note regarding his thoughts on the state of American letters. And so for that reason, this is especially, it makes me smile every time I hear it or I see it. Um, but I, I love how subversive this poem is. I think that the language in it is really, um, it manages to be encouraging and confrontational and like, I think kind of funny. And so, I mean, the, the image of a polka dot on Minnie Mouse's skirt in the title really sets you up, I think, for an entirely different expectation um, versus what is to come in the rest of the poem. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think it's effective on many levels. Yeah. This was such an interesting one to me because it's it does it it really I think of like talking about poems that you know trying to stay away from poems that are too polemical, but this one's definitely doing that. But it's really couching in a sense of an I narrator. You know, this story is about you know it starts out with the I and 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 what the I is doing in the actions and it's and it's not it's it has an argument, but it's funny and it's engaging and it's imp- it feels honest and human um and i i just i i love the way that it's able to do all of those things just on you know one page i think is is just amazing mm, me too i i love the turn that it makes and i also love how um for those who were reading along you'll see that almost everything is lowercase until the last three mentions of children are put all in caps um to be given i i don't know to be given power or to to make the reader pay closer attention or to even offer a sense of urgency like he's, you know, the the speaker is getting amped up by that time. Mm-hmm. I love that. Um, um, I'd like to pivot just a little bit if that's possible. And I know that we've discussed what we think political poetry means and, and how um, it is affecting poetry as a tool of social engagement. But I am wondering about how um, up-and-coming poets are also engaging with the sociological trifecta of race, class, and gender, things that um, historically they have been discouraged, we even have been discouraged from dealing with these types of things in our work. Um, And I'm really heartened by what I'm seeing coming out of the people who are in MFA programs now, recent graduates, um, you know, folks coming out with their first books. And I was just curious um, how you guys thought about that. I agree. Um, I I think that for a long time, there's obviously been, um, there have been certain types of privilege that have really colored um, and shaped the literary conversation um, and as you said, discouraged people from writing about or engaging with 
ideas or notions of identity and experience that don't fit the parameters that have already been set. And um, I think it's really wonderful in some ways to be writing as an American poet in this time because I do think we're all starting to feel a shift happening where, um, you know, there there have been maybe like one or two identities and experiences and even voices that have been treated as a kind of standard um, and held up as a standard. And I think that it's um, a lot. Of, I think a lot of people who maybe didn't have the microphone understood everything that was wrong with that. And that, of course, there are there are so many identities and there are so many facets of human experience that obviously holding up one or two as the standard. And then, you know, anyone who deviates from that in any small way is somehow outside of that or another or to be discouraged. Um, I think it's, I think we're all starting to feel a shift away from that. And I do think that it's heartening. Um, and I think that it's even helpful maybe for people who feel a little resistant to it, because I mean, I think the thing about, privilege and the thing about writing from a place of privilege or speaking or acting from a, a place of privilege is that people who are doing that frequently seem to have the, the thought process that, um, you know, of course it's okay for me to do like X destructive or damaging thing because it wouldn't bother me if this were done. <laughs> of course, the, the whole point is that, it, I mean, of course it doesn't bother you. You're the one that's doing it, but also of course someone doing exactly this to you or treating you in exactly this way wouldn't have the same effect on you because your life context is entirely different from this other this other person who would be bothered by it. And I think that there's maybe, um, I think it's maybe starting to happen that people are beginning to, people who maybe, uh, you know, 10 or 20 years ago would have had only that thought process and it would have stopped there. They're having that challenge. And some of them, I think, are starting to realize that, oh, well, maybe, maybe this isn't okay for me to do X, Y, or Z, um, and maybe I need to critically examine my place in this situation. And I, I think that that's also very heartening for everybody. Mm. I agree. Yeah. I agree. Well, I also, I think um, one thing that we were also thinking a lot about when, when putting this together was intersectionality as well. So I feel like it's so often in anthologies, it's like, check the box. So it's like, okie doke, we need to have one of this type of writer, one of this type of writer, and um, as opposed to thinking about you know, uh, people as people um, and people as complex and and uh, and uncategorizable, um, you know, it's like one of. I mean, I, I think people can say, "Oh, well, you, you know, to me, you're a white woman poet." I'm like, "Well, I'm a white woman poet, but I am also a." bisexual, atheist, Southern poet who grew up in very deep poverty. So like, there's a lot of other things that are going on there. And I think having this, what I, what I really love about this anthology is a lot of the poems are working within that context. So it's like, it's not just like, here is my single singular identity here. I can be put into this particular box and defined in this particular way, but instead seeing the entirety of, of people, uh, whether it's just one poem or it's in a number of poems and getting to see more than just kind of the, 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 what am I thinking of? Um, and more than just kind of like one, one type. So I noticed like in the Nortons, for example, um, most of the poem there is a lot of political and poetry in those and a lot of, but the political, it's always like, okay, here is, 
you know, here is a poem by Joy Harjo about being Native American, but there's not a poem in there about Joy Harjo, you know, uh, folding socks or Joy Harjo, like <laughs> making eggs um, or Joy Harjo falling in love. It's all about like this certain kind of identity that I think is, is incredibly limiting and, and in many ways can work against that kind of elements of inclusion as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that once we, I guess we're only beginning now to break free from the idea of binary, and even in political poetry, as you're saying, like if there's no polemic introduced, once we break free of the either this or that, and we allow for an entire spectrum of thought, of identity, of voice, of being, um, it, it kind of opens up literature in a really amazing way. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm noticing. Um, so for the final reading from the anthology, we have Jasmine on, and if you want to follow along, please, her piece is on page 25. Jasmine meets Monkey at the Kalamazoo Chinese Christian Church, and he is uncomfortable, swinging his iron staff from hand to hand, crouching on the wooden pew. The sanctuary is full of old folk in Sunday's best, singing to the Lord in Mandarin reading pinyin out of their hymn books, shivering the rafters. Monkey fidgets too loud. Popo grabs him in one jade-ringed hand, me in the other, and drags us to Sunday school. In the sunny room with decals of Noah's Ark hugging the molding, Monkey skips from circle rug to play table. His golden hair stands on end and he doubles in size. Lord of the small children who are unwieldy adults, who stretch on tiptoe to peer over the bank's high counter and trade words between grandma and teller, Mandarin and American. Washer Sunukung, he declares, and the children shout and clap their hands. They chatter at him, and he stops to drop kisses on their inky heads. Haizi, Haizi, Waini he says, and they dance after him, waving scissors and construction paper animals like swords. Soon they settle onto the circle rug and begin building a great wall out of colored blocks. Still standing by the door, I am on the wrong side of it. Mungi laughs and keeps laughing. When I sneak back to Popoy's side, she frowns but says, as long as you're quiet, and hands me her extra Bible. I listen to the pastor preach the Lord I mean, and wonder which Lord and with what love. I saved this poem for last because I think that there is a lot to unpack here. There's a lot going on, and I was hoping that we could spend some time talking about it. Um, what was your first impression when you saw this poem and decided to make it part of the anthology? Um, I mean, I think that I I tend to have less immediately cerebral responses to work that I really enjoy. And so my I think my first response when I read it was just like, yes, <laughs> we need that. <laughs> um, Again, I'm not sure how useful that is in a you know more detailed conversation about literary merits, but I think um, I agree that there's a lot to unpack, and I think that um, 
for anyone who's read other work by Jasmine, her book naming the, excuse me, her chat book naming the no name woman, um, just won the two Sylvia's chat book prize. And it is beautiful. And it's just like, like tears your guts out. It's amazing. Um, and so I think anyone who's read other work of hers probably would recognize that there is, I think this is like a quality of her work. There's always a lot to unpack. And it's, um, it's always for me, um, Jasmine's work is like couched between beauty, comfort, and devastation. I think she's really good at using beautiful lyrical language to reveal loss or something wounding or um, some sort of difficulty. And she is also really good at conveying um, some sort of concept about how to survive in a world or that may be as dark as, as a poem suggests that it is. Mm-hmm. And I think that I, I see some of that here. Um, I think that there's this, this tension between expectation. Um, I mean, having it set in a church already, I think any church, there's a certain expectation of child behavior, probably, um, female or feminine child behavior. And so there's already this tension between expectation and, and desire. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's navigated in a way to reveal, um, lots of potential pitfalls or potential, um, moments of discomfort. And then at the same time, there's also this sort of resilience in the speaker, um, that I find really attractive. I always love um, literature that places an aware child in in a religious setting, Um, you know, whether it be an epiphany or a realization. But just when you get to experience what an aware child is feeling, seeing and hearing, and then you also get to experience them becoming hyper aware of themselves in that space. It's kind of like like a magical moment in in most literature, and that that's what she does here. Because she doesn't outright tell us the age of the speaker, but you can tell that this is a child, and to know that it ends with you know the pastor preaching and wonder which Lord and with what love. I mean, can you imagine that coming from a child? It breaks your heart. I know it's amazing. Yeah. Well, I love I love the the liminality in this poem. This poem that takes place like n- both in the church, but right outside of the church, in this place of great action and great noise and great quiet, um, and the space between uh, between the religions and between um, the the histories. And I love the way in which she is able to kind of navigate between that and um, without really casting judgment um, in in a way that is, uh, you know, and the language itself is just, it's so, you can see everything that's happening. You can feel everything that's happening. There's an energy in the poem with like the law, the way the use of the long lines, but also the use of the couplet kind of speeds us through, but it also kind of visually on the page kind of shows that, that duality that's happening in the poem in a way that I really, really like. Mm-hmm. So um, I would like to know what Sundress is working on now. Is there anything you want our listeners to know about your press and the Academy for the Arts? 
Uh, Sundress right now, we are open for uh, our open reading period for manuscripts goes until the end of July. Um, we we do a, we're doing a cool thing this year. We're, to, or we're probably going to do again, but you uh, if you buy a book of any title, including Political Punch, um, you get a free entry into our open reading period, either for yourself or for a friend. So you can if you buy a copy of Political Punch and you have a friend who has been hesitant about sending out their manuscript or doesn't have the money to do so right now, you can gift that through a nomination uh, to, to anyone that you would like. Um, we also are, we have a couple more days for our fall residencies, but we'll be opening up for our uh, spring, uh, spring residencies, which we have scholarships. Uh, we will be pairing with Lambda Literary uh, this coming year uh, to offer two scholarships to LGBTQ uh, identified uh, writers. Um, so all of the information on that should be up on our website shortly. That's fantastic. Thank you. Um, so I always end my interviews with two questions, so I'd like each of you to answer. Um, first is, who are you reading right now? Uh, right now, I am teaching a summer class. Uh, on <laughs> so not reading. <laughs> so I, I'm reading the Bond Woman's narrative for about the 80th time. Um, and uh, I'm reading, uh, really excited. I, I'm, I'll, I'll be basically, it's it's every day. So I'm reading about 100 pages every day along with my students. And um, But uh, but some but some Herland is coming up next. I'm very excited. Ooh, so Awesome. What about you, Fox? Well, I'm just about to defend my doctoral dissertations. So unfortunately, most of what I'm reading right now is like these boring literary uh, scholarly critical texts that I'm, I'm reluctant to recommend to any non-academic listeners. Um, but I did just finish reading Jasmine's chapbook, Naming the No-Name Woman, that I mentioned earlier. Um, and I also am about halfway through M. Max's book, Theater of Parts, which is from Sundress Publications. So those have been my fun summer reads so far. Um, awesome. Um, and who are you listening to right now? Uh, I'm, I'm in, well, a lot of NPR. <laughs> you guys are no fun. I'm just going to um, put it out there. <laughs> I've been listening to Hedwig and the Angry Inch, like the soundtrack, and Wig in a Box on a loop for the past yeah, couple yeah. days. <laughs> I've also been on like nostalgia time period and was listening to a ton of Tori Amos. So I feel like that's always the beginning of the summer. But um, yeah. So. <laughs> well, I want to say everyone's been listening to Lemonade. Le mm. Oh, yeah. Oh, totally. So good. <laughs> Um, I want to thank you two so much for taking time out of your day to come on here and to speak with us, but also for creating this anthology, which you have done in such a responsible way that it should become the industry standard of, of how to curate an anthology, in my opinion. Oh, that's nice. Thank you. You're very welcome, and thank you. This has been Jen Fitzgerald with New Books and Poetry, reminding you to support all the arts, but especially poetry.